Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, May uh, 13th, (laughs) tripping over my tongue here, May 13th, 2010. Day planning what I hope will be informative, educational, and entertaining radio. Again, what is the point of doing theological radio if it's going to be dry, gravelly, and you know, just bland and tasteless? Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of just uh, crazy things being said about God. And, uh, folks, uh, these are dangerous times. I mean, I don't know what is going on, but uh, God's enemies are in control in many places, many pulpits. They are no longer Christian pulpits. They have become uh, places where uh, unbelievers can go to uh, get their uh, their tickly, their tingly, itchy ears scratched. They can hear what they want to hear about God. And in some places, outright mockery, outright blatant, blasphemous mockery of God and the Holy Spirit is what is the staple uh, being preached. Let me give you an example of the outright mockery. If you uh, if you uh, visit the, uh, the Museum of Idolatry, I put up an exhibit last night entitled Demoniac Preacher. I have no other way to describe this, what you're about to hear, as just demonic mockery of God, Christians, God's Word, the Holy Spirit. I mean, it, this is not biblical Christianity. This is from the pit of hell. Uh, here, uh, listen in. From Fired Up uh, International Ministries uh, in uh, Australia. They actually have a Fire It Up Miracle Training College. And this is from the Wine Barrel Family Church in uh in Australia. And then Jesus asked, were not all 10 of you leper horns healed? Where's the other nine? (laughs) 
Was there no one found to return and recognize and give thanks and praise to God except this alien? And he said to him, get up, go on your way. Your faith that springs forth from your belief in God has restored you to health. And, ah, hey, ah. Sounds just like the same demon that oppresses Patricia King. And the winner is seat number nine. You see, that's a lot like the church. They get all there. Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus. Praise him. Right? And then something happens like there's a miracle. And nine out of ten people just go on their merry way. Thinking, oh, that was a lovely word this morning. Oh, did you see what Betty was wearing? Oh, I don't like that dress. Right? They go on their way. And out of ten people, there's one that goes, hang on, Jesus did something in my life this morning. You see, you can't come into, woo, you can't, you, 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 hello, wall. You can't, you can't come into the presence of God and not have a miracle happen. Hey, you can't get, 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 you can't get in this building without getting a miracle. Nine out of ten Christians are too stupid to know that something's happened. What's that horrible feeling in my stomach? Oh, there's something not right there. That's the devil going out. What's this? I feel like laughing. I feel like dancing. I feel like breathing. I want to breathe. Now, that can't be right. That's you getting free, you getting liberated, getting filled with a joy, unspeakable. I wish more Christians were unspeakable. Uh. <laughs> yeah, that's just a sampling. If you, if you can stomach it, uh, the rest of this 9 minute and 50 second video, which is now an exhibit in the Museum of Idolatry, as an artifact of apostasy. I mean, this is just blatant, flat-out, satanic, demonic mockery, supposedly in the church. And so what do we do here at Fighting for the Faith? Well, uh, we compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word. I don't... I, what this guy was saying was absolute, just garbage it was absolute mockery that's not the holy spirit acting upon that man there are only two choices left maybe three uh let me give you the likely candidates at this point that's not the biblical holy spirit ain't no way in hades that's the biblical holy spirit acting on him that means that we what we have left is uh demonic forces Either that or the guy has a bona fide mental illness. That's the other option. Or he's just completely making it up. Just being a quack. This is not Christianity. 
Anyway, so what we do here at Fighting for the Faith is <clears throat> I am the uh, I'm spiritually gifted in the gift of dumpster diving for Jesus, because one of the things I think is really important is that uh, when it comes to understanding how to do biblical discernment, you, you need to understand what I'm talking about. If I say, you know, there's some people out there who think this or they state that, it's not as powerful as if I were to go and actually let that person who believes this or that speak for themselves so that you can hear it from the horse's mouth. I'm not calling them horses, but if, so that you can hear it from the horse's mouth and understand for yourself that these are walking, living, breathing uh, arguments, if you would, beliefs that, that are held by living people. These are things being said by actual human beings in supposed churches or, quote, Christian pulpits or being said by Christian authors, by published by Christian publishing houses, or Christian speakers being said at supposedly Christian conferences. You see, that's all very important. So and then the, what do we do? We compare what they say in the name of God to the word of God to find out if what they're saying is true. We believe that God's word is true, and it's the rule by which we, we judge all doctrine, all teaching regarding God. If you are saying something about God that is, one, not in the scriptures, or two, contradicts the scriptures, well, it's false data. We reject it. It gets kicked out of the system here at Fighting for the Faith. So we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. And at the same time, I know that there's many of you out there who listen to Fighting for the Faith. You end up, well, uh, beating your head against the wall. So, you know, I, I understand that. It, it, I do it from time to time myself. And I find that it does sort of kind of help, um, uh, but not really. I, I, Advil and uh, in an adult beverage may be the right course. All right, moving along, let's talk about what we're going to talk about here at Fighting for the Faith today. Uh, yesterday, we didn't get to this, and I wanted to get to this. Uh, Virgin Mary, um, she was supposed to make an appearance at the uh, Knock Shrine in Ireland back on May 11th. And, you know, I know you all are just dying to get information to find out, did the Virgin Mary show up at not, at the Knock Shrine or not? I mean, well, thankfully, I've done my homework, and I, I've got the story for you. It's multifaceted. And so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be doing some Virgin Ma uh, Mary uh, news today here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, and then um, I was uh, working through my library of um, sermons and uh, checking in on the latest from Granger Community Church, which is considered to be the sixth most influential church in the United States and is one of the premier purpose-driven uh, churches uh, on planet Earth. And... Um, I heard Mark Beeson say something in last week's sermon that I couldn't agree with more. And uh, and so I, I, I found some common ground with Mark Beeson, finally. And uh, and so I'm going to be playing that, that soundbite from Mark Beeson. And, uh, and uh, basically, uh, it, Rick Warren, if you're listening, you're going to want to pay attention to this segment because uh, uh, Mark Beeson has some prophetic words for you. And, uh, and then let's see here. Um, well, let's see. Uh, if we have time, th this is kind of our our um, the um, on deck uh, article. 
the Christian Post, you know, the Iron Man movie, Iron Man 2 is out. And somebody's uh, written a op-ed piece over at the Christian Post, semi-devotional, if you would, called We Are All Iron Men. <clears throat> yeah, and then uh, and then for sure, now that's our on-deck story today, and then for sure we're going to be uh, uh, starting a, a, a series. I don't know how often we'll get to this, but uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of motivated to uh, do this uh, uh, in several installments, and this will be our first installment in a series entitled Interrupting Bart Ehrman. Uh, he's the author of a book called Jesus Interrupted. And uh, basically, if you're not familiar with Bart Ehrman, he is a former fundamentalist evangelical who discovered higher criticism and has since abandoned the Christian faith and claims that the Bible is completely unreliable. We can't trust what the Gospels teach. And the reality is, is that Bart Ehrman uh, is on the cutting edge of scholarship from the 1800s. I mean, that's just how great his scholarship is. I mean, and I, I'm going to give you some examples of that. Uh, he recently did a, a debate with Craig Evans. Uh, Craig Evans is a, is a very great, he's a very good New Testament scholar. He's uh, got a book out called Fabricating Jesus. And I've actually had a couple of conversations with uh, Craig Evans and have uh, threatened to have him on the on the uh, program here uh, one or two times. I'm hoping to, you know, to bring him on. It, 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 I won't go into details as to what's holding that up at this point. It's, it's really on my end, not his. But um, uh, so he did a re- recently did a debate with uh, Bart Ehrman. And what I liked about the debate that Craig Evans did with Bart Ehrman is this that uh, the format was such that it, it kind of had Bart Ehrman locked up in a cage. And, <laughs> and they didn't really interact with each other. They each gave answers to seven questions, and there was no cross-examination that was part of the uh, uh, the debate. <laughs> and so as a result of it, uh, Craig just did a, a great job. He really, really laid out a good, solid, scholarly case for the reliability of the of the of the Bible, uh, specifically the New Testament Gospels. And um, Bart Ehrman, I tell you, you know, he he, <laughs> he seemed to me, I, as I watched the debate, I was cracking up. He seemed to me like a junior high kid having a temper tantrum. And uh, and I'm going to play some uh, play some examples of the Bart Ehrman's brilliant 19th century scholarship. It's not 21st century scholarship that we're dealing with with Bart Ehrman. We he is firmly on the cutting edge of the 19th century, and uh, it's so bad that um, I've got a book that I've been reproducing, and I got I'm going to be putting up a few more chapters of it in the uh, Museum of Idolatry. In, uh, the name of the book is Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible. It was written by John Haley. Uh, but let me t- – <laughs> well, this book was originally written and published in 1874. <laughs> I get, so <clears throat> let me put it this way. Um, Haley in – John Haley in 1874 – as pretty, <laughs> back then, he anticipated Bart Ehrman and, or, and already 
discredited Bart Ehrman and disproved his so-called alleged discrepancies of the Bible. So uh, if you if you want if you're looking for places that you can go, you know, if you're looking for resources that you can find to refute Bart Ehrman, you don't even need to look at any 21st century scholar. You just need to find the guys back from the 1800s that refuted Bart Ehrman because they did such a whiz-bang job. I mean, you can't even really add to the work that they've done. And so <laughs> I tell you, Bart Ehrman just I feel bad for the guy. But I, I mean, the, realistically, that's what we're dealing with here. What we're dealing with here is is 18th, no, well, 19th century. Yeah. Yeah, 18th, 19th century, 1800s, the 19th century, uh, higher criticism. Uh, that's what we're dealing with with Bart Ehrman. He is uh, he is just an an arcane, archaic dinosaur in his uh, in his argumentation. And the thing that's dishonest about him is is that he acts like there's not no one has dared to answer the the, the discrepancies that he is bringing to light. What a load of garbage. I mean, it, 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 the, one of the things I loved about uh, Evans is, is that he didn't even really get into it with uh, Ehrman on his terms because Ehrman, uh, he's all, uh, back in the 1800s, Ehrman was already, his arguments were discredited and disproven. And so, um, again, if you'd like to get a copy of this, the name of his alleged discrepancies of the Bible and uh, I'm reproducing it in the Pirate Cove. So if you uh, are, if you're a member of the uh, uh, Pirate Christian Radio crew, we've already got a few of the uh, we've already got a few of the chapters available there uh, at the Pirate Cove, and uh, we'll be adding more of them shortly. So uh, stay tuned. And uh, one of the things I will be doing over the summer is uh, republishing this in an EPUB and Kindle format. So stay tuned. We'll be uh, we'll be uh, re- putting that out uh, this summer. So. We'll be doing interrupting Bart Ehrman, and then our sermon review today. Oh boy, um, let me find out where I didn't. I didn't put down the name of the pastor on this one. Hold on a second here. Gotta look up something on my computer. Um, the name of the, <laughs> this is from Journey Community Church, and the name of the sermon is Thirty Days to Live. Life is short. Live now. Yeah, there. So that's going to round out our program today, and uh, so make yourself comfortable. We have lots and lots of stuff to do today, and uh, I'm looking forward to the program. And with that in mind, we're going to dive into our program proper, uh, which means that uh, I've got to introduce this next segment with some music, and I've picked out the appropriate music just for this particular story regarding the Virgin Mary. Here we go. In times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Um, yeah, uh, from irishcentral.com, 
the headline reads, um, uh, No Blessed Virgin Mary Apparition at Knock as Visionary Falls Ill. Yeah, um, this is just absolutely sad and tragic. Those of you uh, who are fans of the Virgin Mary, um, apparently she, she didn't show at the uh, on May 11th at the Knock Shrine in uh, the county of Mayo, not Mayonnaise, but Mayo there in uh, in Ireland. Um, this is written by Kate Hickey um, uh, of uh, IrishCentral.com. We read. Over 300 people gathered at the Holy Shrine in Knock, uh, County Mayo today, where they were told the Virgin Mary would appear at 3 p.m. You know, listen, I I understand that the Virgin Mary, that, you know, she's been assumed up into heaven, and she may not have access to, you know, technology that would help her out, like a day planner. Um, an iPhone, an iPad, a, a BlackBerry, a Treo. Um, so she, you know, maybe she just forgot to write this down. But, but Joe Coleman, by the way, who is uh, the visionary who claims that the Virgin Mary has been speaking to him, on his uh, website has an explanation. But let me read the story before we get to his explanation. Joe Coleman, the uh, Dublin-based self-proclaimed visionary predicted that the Virgin Mary would appear at Knock after crosses appeared in the sky. In the sky. Coleman left the 300-strong crowd after a number of hours clutching his side and saying that he felt ill and said that he had received another message from the Virgin Mary. So far, there have been no reports of any apparitions. Coleman uh, was refused permission to pray in the grotto by officials when he approached. He was forced to await the apparition with the other pilgrims in the grounds outside. The Catholic Church has dismissed any claims or proclamations that he has made. And uh, this year, the pilgrims at least came prepared. Those staring uh, star- staring the sky in, in the wait were, f- uh, for the most part, wearing sunglasses in order to protect their eyes from the sun. Last year, there were at least five cases of retinal damage following similar a similar pilgrimage. In September and October last year, the thousands of pilgrims traveled with Coleman to the Knock Shrine, where he claims he has received various messages from the Virgin Mary. Um, so, anyway, he cl- uh, Coleman cl- has claimed that the crosses would appear in the sky above Mayo, and that the Virgin Mary would appear on May 11th at 3 p.m. He said that these apparitions would be precursors to the second coming of Jesus. So um, that was um, the story from the uh, 11th. Now, leading up to it, um, leading up to May, the May 11th date, uh, Irish Central also reported uh, the two days before um, that uh, Joe Coleman uh, was claiming that there was going to be major tsunamis. Listen to this. I, uh, I, the, the headline reads, Irish visionary claims Virgin Mary predicts tsunamis to hit both sides of the Atlantic. Visionary Joe Coleman holding a cross at the Knock Shrine. Irish spiritual leader Joe Coleman says that Our Lady, that would be the Virgin Mary, predicted that tsunamis would hit both sides of the Atlantic and cause untold damage to the United States and Europe on Sunday, though none were reported. 
The latest message from the Virgin Mary comes ahead of her next visit uh, to Nock, which is scheduled for May 11th at 3 p.m. The oceans will explode. The Atlantic Ocean, three major volcanic explosions under the sea, tsunamis both sides of the ocean between America and Europe. Fire will fall from the heavens. Ireland is under a massive threat from the evil one. Pray, pray, pray for peace, reads part of the message relayed to Coleman from the Virgin Mary. This disaster was set to take place two days before her next apparition, uh, which means if Coleman was right, the world would have experienced a seismic disaster on Sunday. Uh, according to Coleman, Mary's communication line to him and all of the disasters she is uh, predicting are all heralding the second coming of Christ. Our, quote, Our Lady will continue to give advanced signs through the apparitions in Ireland and possibly elsewhere to help convert people back to God so that they can redeem themselves in the eyes of God before the second coming. Well, you see, that's the problem. Uh, At this point, what can we say for sure about Joe Coleman? Well, Joe Coleman is a false prophet. He's a false prophet on two counts. One, he predicted that massive tsunamis would hit the U.S. and uh, the uh, European coast on Sunday, this past Sunday, and that didn't pan out. That makes him a false prophet. Now, the other thing is, is that he's also guilty of preaching false doctrine. Let me explain, okay? Here it is right here. He says, um, Our Lady will continue to give advanced signs through the apparitions in Ireland and possibly elsewhere to help convert people back to God so that they can redeem themselves in the eyes of God before the second coming. Now, see, that's the problem. That's that's a bona fide false gospel that we've got being preached there by uh, Joe Coleman. So Joe Coleman, not only is a false prophet, he predicted something to happen and it didn't happen. Two, he's preaching a false gospel that we have to redeem ourselves. We don't have to redeem ourselves. We have been redeemed by Jesus Christ himself. He has died on the cross for the sins of the whole world and calls the whole world to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. Our redemption is secured and won by him, not us, by him, not us. And so, I mean, unfortunately, there's, you know, at least 300 people who are showing up to these events and, um, you know, in order to hear words from the Virgin Mary. I mean, this is all just quack pottery is what it comes down to. Now, on his um, website, knockapparitions.com, um, Joe Coleman has an explanation as to why the Virgin Mary didn't show up as scheduled. And it has nothing to do with blueberries, blackberries, um, iPhones, iPads, or uh, or droids or anything like that, or her inability to use a day planner. Uh, according to Joe, uh, to Joe Coleman, uh, here uh, he's on his knockapparitions.com website. Here's what he claimed. He says the apparition was sabotaged. Yeah, the, the see the reason why the Virgin Mary didn't show up is because it the the whole thing was sabotaged. Um, it, it, the Irish visionary and seer Joe Coleman was told that he could not recite the Holy Rosary around out loud inside of the apparition chapel yesterday, and that if he or any members of the public were found uh, praying out loud, that they would be removed 
uh, by security staff, according to sources. Ireland, Dublin, uh, the, the 12th of May, 2010. Irish visionary and seer Joel Coleman was told that he could not recite the Holy Rosary outside the apparition chapel. And uh, the apparition, which was to take place inside the apparition chapel at uh, at 2 p.m., where the Holy Rosary is usually recited out loud, had abandoned the people having to huddle together in the rain outside in groups to say the prayer with Coleman. Knock Shrine authorities informed Joe Coleman that he would be held personally responsible should anyone in the church be caught reciting the um, rosary out loud. He he was, he says, also informed that praying aloud is not permitted in any of the churches at the Knock Shrine and that written permission must be sought in advance from the shrine by groups of individuals if they wish to pray in this way. So an incredulous Joe Coleman said, I am deeply shocked to think the Catholic Church would instruct people not to say the rosary or pray aloud for whatever reason. What was the church to come to? I knew it was bad, but this is really worrying and a little sinister to tell you the truth. I realize that they, the Catholic Church, has to be cautious about apparitions, but in this case they have decided that they don't believe me. So, see, see that's see, what. Well, there you go. See, the reason why the Virgin Mary didn't show up at 3 p.m. on May 11th is, well, because the Catholic Church sabotaged the whole operation by refusing to allow the, the, the pilgrims there to pray the rosary out loud. And therefore, the Virgin Mary, well, she just skipped right over the place. Apparently, she forgot to also, ha- you know, to deluge the United States and the uh, European coasts on the Atlantic coast with tsunamis um, as planned too. So, yeah, just chalk this up to uh, false prophets, false prophecies, false gospels, and a whole bunch of well-meaning and very misled people. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here you're listening to fighting for the faith you're listening to pirate christian radio we'll be taking your false doctrine now Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. 
Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I should be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they too could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Uh, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve packet. Well, of course it's in the wrong package, sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well I, I'd better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered, uh, gospel, Jesus. Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well... We're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate.
dancing in my seat, doing the white man overbite. Still love my bumper music, by the way. Warning. If you think the Virgin Mary is talking to you, no. No, no, no. Listen to God's word. God has already spoken. It's called the Bible. Focus on that, not apparitions of the Virgin Mary. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means... We depend upon your generous financial gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring this important discernment radio outreach to you as to the wor- and to the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And for those of you who are crew members, thank you for joining. And uh, once we get to 1,000 listeners, we have a little less than 300 to go. Once we get to 1,000 listeners, then uh, we are able to pay our bills every month. And you're sitting there going, well, are you paying your bills now? Kind of. <laughs> um, if you haven't joined, please do. And, uh, of course, if you'd like to uh, send in the amount of your choosing, you can do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Do it today. Do it now. A little subliminal messaging there. So um, anyway, all right, moving along. Um, where are my program notes? Ah, here we go. Okay, we did the Virgin Mary. Okay, yeah, let's check this one out. Um, Was going through my, uh, you know, I still have 1,248 sermons I need to catch up on. But uh, that's okay. It's not nearly as bad as my email. So um, (laughs) uh, while I I was checking in on the latest from Granger Community Church, and wouldn't you know it, uh, Mark Beeson, uh, the uh, founding pastor, uh, founding teacher pastor there at Granger Community Church, well, he has um, said something that I completely agree with. I, and now, he, listen, don't think for a second that this means I'm going to be championing Mark Beeson because I'm really not. But he said something that I thought was really important and kind of out of character for a uh, a purpose-driven pastor. Why? Well, because purpose-driven sermons, if you've listened to uh, Fighting for the Faith for any length of time since we review sermons constantly... Uh, the one thing that they, they are known for is absolutely twisting, mangling, and not correctly handling God's word. That being said, since uh, Granger Community Church is the sixth most influential uh, church in the United States and, you know, one of the brightest shining stars in the purpose-driven uh, uh, universe, um, I thought this was uh, very important for Mark Beeson to say in fact, uh, I'm going to be putting this as a sound as a soundbite on my soundboard, and um, and you know, anyway, uh, it, Rick Warren, if you are listening, if you if anybody from Saddleback is uh, listening, make sure that uh, Pastor Warren hears this uh, very sage advice and very important thing that uh, Mark Beeson has uh, said. It has to do with Bible twisting. Here we go. Write this down. Clear biblical teaching matters. We don't want to be Bible twisters. Amen. That's right. (laughs) Mark Beeson is the one who said that. Not me. That was Mark Beeson, a purpose-driven pastor. Uh, uh, 
I, I should send that out as a memo to all of the purpose-driven types out there. Doesn't it just drive you crazy when someone twists your words? You say something, and someone takes what you said, and they take it apart, and they just say part of it, and they pretend like that's what you said, but it's not really what you said. It's just part of what you said. And, and then they tell people it's what you said, but it wasn't really what you said. It was just part of what you said. And, it, and then it's misunderstood, and they twisted your words, and now there's a whole different meaning. People do that to the Bible. Do you know you can quote the Bible and twist its meaning? You just take a verse from over here and plug it into a verse from over here. That's what all the purpose-driven pastors do. They don't. And Rick Warren is like the king of it. Don't go together at all. You, I mean, it's like you could say, like, Judas went and hanged himself. Go thou quickly and do likewise. What? Those don't go together. And someone could say, you can't say that. It's like, no, that's, I'm just quoting the Bible. No, no, you're twisting it. Does it drive you crazy when someone twists your words? You're with the Girl Scouts. Go on the Girl Scout camp out, you know, and you're helping the girls look at stuff in the woods. That was three years ago. And then some young girl comes up to you and goes, oh, to talk to you about something that happened three years ago when I was a Girl Scout and we went on a camp out. <laughs> well, you're immediately because you love young people and you think, oh my, something's happened to this precious child. Three years ago, she's been carrying this pain for three years. Now she comes to me. Yeah, I can't believe it. Susie told me that you called me a fatty pants. How could you call me fatty pants? And you remember, you say, what? What? No, I didn't say that. Remember, we was a camp out and we were looking at the bugs. And I told Susie, go tell her to look at these fat ants. How could you? That's not what I said. Susie twisted those words. Now, listen, if it bothers you when someone takes your words and twists them, so they can use them for their own purposes, to hurt someone or to manipulate someone. How much more must it pain the heart of God, whom the Bible says hates God, hates dishonesty. How much more must it break the heart of God when we take the word of God, the Bible itself, and twist God's words? Uh, Rick Warren, are you listening? Earth to Rick Warren. Actually, this is a message from the pirate cave. Did you hear what Mark Beeson just said? <clears throat> Apparently, he's broken ranks with uh, the greater purpose-driven uh, preaching community. Um, yeah, but I couldn't agree with Beeson more, so I thought I would uh, share that with you. <sighs> All right, uh, moving along here. Um, as earlier mentioned, I, I'm going to be doing a, a – hopefully there will be several installments to this. Uh, the name of this, uh, the uh, series will be entitled Ehrman, Bart Ehrman Interrupted. And uh, I'm going to be taking some time to, uh, to to do the kindergarten work that uh, that most scholars really don't have time to do with Bart Ehrman because, well, Bart Ehrman is on the cutting edge of the 18th and 19th century when it comes to his um, uh, biblical scholarship. And, uh, and as a result of it, Bart Ehrman seems to think that alleged discrepancies of the Bible disprove the reliability of the, of the Bible. The problem is, is that all of these alleged discrepancies that he's brought up, well, they actually have 
pretty much been answered and they were answered like 150 years ago. Anyway, um, let me uh, play just a couple of relevant sound bites to kind of set the stage. Here is Bart Ehrman's logic regarding um, these alleged discrepancies. Here we go. My question is, is the Bible then inaccurate in some of the things that it says Jesus said? So the idea is we, we, there's alleged discrepancies in the Bible, and now if the Bible's inaccurate in some of the things that Jesus said. If so, if it's inaccurate in some things, how do we know that it's not inaccurate in lots of things? And if it's, it's inaccurate in lots of things, what makes us think we can trust it? Okay, now I'm going to use his uh, argument against him. Okay, he's basically going to make a case that the Bible's full of discrepancies, and if, if we can't, can't trust it in some of these things, how can we trust it? And how can he even be trusted at all is basically what it comes down to. Well, here's my question for uh, Bart Ehrman. Um, uh, Dr. Ehrman, now listen, I don't have a doctorate yet. It's coming, don't worry. Um, I don't have a doctorate yet. But um, if I can prove that your scholarship is just completely unreliable and sophomoreish, um, and that these so-called alleged discrepancies that you keep pointing to actually have been answered, and many of the answers have actually been given 150 years ago. Wouldn't that show that your scholarship is pretty shoddy, and why should we trust you as a scholar? I mean, th- th- I mean, using your logic against you, I mean, it does cut both ways, doesn't it? Anyway, here's a little bit more of Bart Ehrman and his uh, just bear trap uh, logic regarding the Bible. If they change the words of Jesus, then how do we know where they've changed them and where do we know we're actually reading the words of Jesus? The same thing applies to Jesus' deeds. Can we trust what the Gospels say about what Jesus did? If the stories about Jesus were sometimes changed as Christians told and retold the stories as they adapted them, how do we know that they weren't changed a lot before the Gospels were written down? Or are we to think that all four Gospels are 100% accurate with respect to Jesus' activities? If they're not 100% accurate, how do we know that they're at all accurate? And if we don't know how accurate they are, why should we trust them as historical sources? Okay, now, that's kind of the logic that we're, that uh, Ehrman works with. And, oh boy, have we got some interesting issues with uh, Bart Ehrman. But I thought what I would do is uh, let's take a look at some of these, some of the evidence that he has that the Bible is full of historical inaccuracies and full of discrepancies and full full of errors and and just take a look and see if if i mean if there's anything to these claims that he's making or if uh well bart ehrman is basically just suffering from an inability to read because so many of these um so-called discrepancies well they were they've been answered like in the 1800s um here's uh bart ehrman dr ehrman are the gospels reliable In my view, there is certainly historically reliable information in the Gospels, of course. But there are also pieces of historically unreliable information. Okay, so there's historically reliable information in the Gospels and historically unreliable information in the Gospels. Okay, can you give us an example, uh, Dr. Ehrman? This can be seen by the fact that sometimes there are flat-out discrepancies between the Gospels. 
as you will see. Okay, now hold on a second here. <clears throat> Remember the name of this is Ermin interrupted. Um, discrepancies in the Bible. Does that prove? Okay. The appearance of discrepancies in the Bible. Does that prove historical that, that the Bible contains historically inaccurate information? Now, the reason I ask this question is because basically showing what he does then is he, he shows that there's differences in some of the stories in the scriptures. There's differences in how the story was recorded and these differences, he elevates them to the status of full blown historical inaccuracies. Now, let me, let me give you an example that is, seems a little bit odd, but work with me for a second here. Um, Let's say, for instance, that there are two white uh, – there's, there's two white people, a, a man and a woman. They fall in love. They get married, and, they, and things go the way of marriage for them, and the wife becomes pregnant, and they – and she's pregnant for – Nine months, they go to the hospital because you know things are getting close to the time she's having contractions, and wouldn't you know it? Um, you know the contractions. They she goes into hard labor and she gets to the point where she pushes, she pushes, she pushes, and out comes their brand new baby daughter, and she um she well she's black now. This is kind of awkward, okay? Now, work with me for a second. This is really awkward. The husband looks at the wife. The wife looks at the husband. And the wife says, Honey, this is your daughter. And the husband says, How is that possible? I'm white. You're white. Our baby, she's beautiful. But how can she be related to me because she's, well, dark-skinned? Now you're thinking, what kind of crazy thing is this? Well, here's the deal. We've now detected in this particular scenario, well, a difference. The wife says she's faithful, yet there is their daughter, and she she looks ethnically different than her father, and even her. How can this be explained? Well, it just so happens that this is not a completely uncommon occurrence. And the wife claims fidelity to her husband, and she's right. Okay. I would point you to the uh, Monday, March 17th, 2003 article by Rory Carroll, from The Guardian in the UK. The name of the headline is Black Woman with White Parents. Sandra Lang was born black, but to white parents. And it tells the story how Sandra Lang, she entered the world in 1955 to white parents and it turns out genetically she is that her her white father is her father and her white mother is her mother how is it possible well both of her parents in their past both of them have ancestors who uh who married uh, interracially 
back in the 1800s. And it just so happened that the right combination came up genetically that she was she got you know she got the genes from both her mom and her dad and she came out dark skinned now here's the deal just because there's a difference or you're able to point out a difference doesn't mean that you can automatically elevate that difference to some kind of a dubious thing in in Bart Ehrman's case he's going to bring up supposed differences between the stories told in the gospels but bringing them up and putting them together does not prove that 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 they, that that rises to the level of historical inaccuracy just the same as just the saying hey wait a second your daughter is black and your parents are white that must mean that your mom was uh, sleeping with the postman okay no that doesn't logically follow at all and in this in this particular case historically that turned out not to be true you see what i'm saying here so this is important to kind of frame this stuff so here's bart herman's Okay, he's going to show differences, but he, in his mind, makes the leap over the chasm to say, these differences prove historical, the, the, the Gospels are historically inaccurate. No, they don't, and they've been answered, and they've been answered in the 1800s. Let's listen. Here's Bart Ehrman. See yourself if you just read them carefully side by side. Let me give you just a taste out of a thousand examples. The Gospel of Matthew says that the father of Joseph, Jesus' father, was Jacob. His grandfather was Mathan, and his great-grandfather was Eleazar. The Gospel of Luke says that Joseph's father was Heli. His grandfather was Mathat, and his great-grandfather was Levi. Well, which was it? The genealogies differ. Yes, the genealogies differ. Does that mean that the genealogies are historically inaccurate? Yes, the genealogies differ. And by the way, Dr. Ehrman, do you think you're the first guy to discover that there's a difference between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy? Are you are you the first to discover this? <clears throat> I read from Alleged Discrepancies of the Bible by John Haley. By the way, did I mention the fact that this book was published in June of 1874? Okay, I read from page 325. Did I mention that this book was written in 1874? <clears throat> there are two principal theories respecting these genealogies. One, that that held by Alfred Ellicott, Hervey Meyer, Mill, uh, Patricius, Wordsworth, and others that both genealogies are Joseph's. Matthew exhibiting him as the legal heir of the throne of David, that is, naming the successive heirs of the kingdom from David to Jesus, the reputed son of Joseph, while Luke gives Joseph's private genealogy or ancestral descent. This theory is very ingeniously and elaborately set forth in Lord Arthur Hervey's work upon the subject to which the reader is referred. By the way, the uh, the uh, the book in question is called The Genealogies of Our Lord, and it was pr uh, published in 1853. Um, let's see here. Moving along, though. Uh, number two, that held by Alberlin, 
Abrard, Gresswell, Kurt Lang, <clears throat> Lightfoot, Michaelius, Neander, Robinson, Seren Howisius, Whistler, and others that Matthew gives Joseph's and Luke's uh, that Matthew gives Joseph's and Luke Mary's genealogy, although the alleged discrepancies may be uh, removed upon either hypothesis, yet we must give the preference to the second theory for the following reasons. One, the latter theory seems supported by several earlier Christian writers. Okay, Let me list off the uh, church fathers that talked about and discussed in their writings the differences between the two genealogies. They are Origen, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Athanasius, and Justin Martyr. Okay. Uh, by the way, if you want more information on this, you can, can see uh, Kitto's uh, Cyclopedia Biblica, uh, Volume 2, pages 92 to 94, uh, or page 547. This work, by the way, was written in the 1800s, and it discusses it in, in detail. It is directly confirmed by Jewish tradition. Lightfoot cites that the Talmudic writers concerning the pains of hell, the statement that Mary, the daughter of Heli, was seen in the infernal regions suffering horrid tortures. This statement illustrates not only the bitter animosity of the Jews towards the Christian religion, but also the fact that according to the received Jewish tradition, Mary was the daughter of Heli. Hence, that it is her genealogy by which that we find in Luke. Okay? So basically, let me kind of fill you in as to what's going on here. Okay? When you study the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and in Luke, you find that there are differences. Okay? The big difference is that Luke's genealogy is the genealogy of Mary. Keep in mind, Joseph was not the biological father of Jesus. He was the legal father of Jesus. So Jesus has to be descendant, uh, an actual descendant of King David. It just so happens that Jesus is a biological descendant of, of King David through his mother, Mary. Now, this all gets kind of elaborate, but it's super important that you understand how this all works out. Now, if Jesus actually was the biological descendant of Joseph, Jesus could not be the Messiah. Yeah, it's absolutely true. If he was the biological in, a descendant of Joseph, he could not be the Messiah. Let me explain why. Because in the genealogy of, of Joseph, we find that Joseph himself is a, a descendant of a cat by the name of Jeconiah, okay? Jeconiah. Now, this is, you're sitting there going, okay, yeah, what does that have to do with anything? Well, it just so happens that Jeconiah was a really evil, wicked king, and God cursed him. Jeremiah chapter 22 gives the details. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24 is where I'll start. Uh, Jeremiah writes, he says, As I live, declares the Lord, Though Konia, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, were the signet right, uh, ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hands of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. 
but to uh, the land to which they uh, will long to return, they shall not return. Is this man, Kania, a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into the land that they do not know? O land, land, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. There you have it. God himself, Yahweh, makes it clear that this this uh, uh, Jeconiah was so evil, so wicked, so bad that not one of his of his offspring, his genetic offspring, shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Just so happens in Matthew chapter one, verse eleven, we read that uh, Jeconiah is in the direct bloodline of Joseph. Joseph, if Jesus had been uh, Joseph's biological son, Joseph would not. I mean, Jesus would not be the Messiah, plain and simple. He would be DQ'd, disqualified, unless, of course, God lies. But God doesn't lie. So how do we resolve this? What do we do in light of this? How how do we handle this particular problem? Well, real simple, okay? If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 3. I'm going to point something out to you in verse 23. Luke chapter 3, verse 23, okay? It says this, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Okay? Now, the Greek word there, enamizito, uh, uh, or from the Greek word namizo, uh, basically means to think or to suppose, or as it was supposed. That's an important flag. Okay? It was supposed that Jesus was the son of Joseph, but he wasn't, right? He was technically biologically related to Mary, but not to Joseph. That's your key. Now, the Talmudic tradition makes it clear that Mary was the daughter of Heli. So we've got who who her father is. Now, In it just so happens that uh, <clears throat> when it comes to... Uh, Israel and the Hebrew tradition as it pertains to inheritance. Numbers chapter 27, verse 8 says this, And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. Okay? It just so happens that in the scriptures, Mary is never mentioned as having brothers. But Mary's sisters are mentioned in the scriptures. So Mary, being a brotherless girl, the the daughter of Heli, the firstborn, she becomes a female inheritor of, of her father Heli. When she marries then, her inheritance legally gets uh, sucked up into, uh, into her husband's uh, family. That being the case, then what happens here is this. Matthew gives us Jesus' legal 
genealogy. Legal, not biological. Jesus is legally the son of Joseph. Uh, Luke gives us Jesus' maternal genealogy, the one by which he is truly reckoned to be the, the, king, uh, the, the son of David. And in that maternal genealogy, it doesn't pass through Jehoiakim. And as a result of it, Jesus is absolutely qualified to be the Messiah. It's a wonderful story if you would just actually do the research, which kind of leads to the question, the kind of thorny, naggy, burning question here at the moment. If Bart Ehrman is really, truly an honest scholar, I mean, he he does have a doctorate, and he truly, truly is concerned about the the so-called discrepancies in the Scripture, then why is it? that he never took the time to look at the answer to the alleged discrepancy here. Okay. And when you, when you study the issue, you find that there's no discrepancy at all when it comes to the genealogy of Jesus, none whatsoever. And that this, these, the so-called alleged discrepancy has been known. People have known about it going all the way back to Irenaeus origin, Tertullian. Yeah, see, it makes you think that uh, Bart Ehrman may not actually be involved in honest scholarship. But let's let's listen to a little bit more of uh, Bart Ehrman interrupted. One of the key motives of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus' disciples don't recognize him as the Messiah until chapter 8. But in the Gospel of John, they call him the Messiah right away, the first time they meet him in chapter 1. Uh, this is a discrepancy. This this makes it so that the Bible. Okay, he's identified a difference in the way the story was told, but does that elevate this to historical inaccuracy or historically incorrect? No, it doesn't. The Gospel of Mark is all over the place in its storytelling, and it doesn't really seem to give us a real chronology as to what's going on. And the chronology in the book of Matthew is even different than the one in the book of Mark, and the chronology in the book of Luke is different than them all. And the chronology in the book of and in the Gospel of John, it's different than all of them still. If it wasn't for the Gospel of John, we wouldn't have known that Jesus' ministry was three years in duration, as opposed to if we would have thought it was one based on the synoptics, which basically begs the question. Was the author of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Mark, trying to give us a chronological uh, story here as it pertained to when somebody claimed that Jesus was the Messiah? No. No. And John's telling is perfectly is perfectly in line with the whole story. It was, I think it's Jesus, you know, is calling Andrew, and Andrew calls him the Messiah. And he says, you believe because I said such and such? Well, you're going to see more than that. You can find it in, in the Gospel of John chapter 1. But this, this, I mean, it's a difference in the story, but it doesn't rise to the to the level of historically inaccurate information at this point. Because none of the Gospels ever claim to give us a complete, chronological, in order, all the details telling of the story. They don't, none of them tends to, uh, tries to do that. Luke comes closest, but that's not the purpose of, of the Gospels. To, and so as a result of it, I mean, if the Gospel of Mark said this was the very first time ever that anybody, none of the disciples had ever said 
even mentioned once that Jesus was the Messiah, then, oh, man, then we might have a real problem on our hand, but that's not what's going on. Let's let's hear another one of these breathtakingly, you know, this again, he had Bart Ehrman on the cutting edge of the eight of scholarship, biblical scholarship from the uh, 17 and 1800s. Which is it? How could it be both? There are small discrepancies between the Gospels, hundreds of them. Was Jairus' daughter sick but still alive when Jairus came to ask Jesus to heal her, as in Mark? This is an important one. Let me back this up. This is actually really important because in the debate, Bart Ehrman makes a point of saying that when he started studying Greek, he, and he, was, he could see the discrepancies for himself. Well, I'm going to question as to whether or not he really has studied the Greek on this. Listen carefully. There are small discrepancies between the Gospels, hundreds of them. Was Jairus' daughter sick but still alive when Jairus came to ask Jesus to heal her, as in Mark? Or did she just die before Jairus came so that he asked Jesus to raise her from the dead, as in Matthew? Hard to see how it could be both ways. Okay. All right. So, by the way, let's uh, if you have your Bible, um, you're going to have to put your fingers in two spots. And I'm going to point this out to you. This is really easy to overcome. Um, Matthew chapter nine, verse 18 and Mark chapter five, verse 23 are the important verses. And by the way, he's basing this argument based upon the English translation, not on the Greek. If he were basing it on the Greek, he would not be saying this is a discrepancy at all. And it's really easy to see if you know greek but since you don't most of you don't i'll help you see it okay here's what it says uh matthew chapter 9 verse 18 we read this matthew records this story this way while he was saying these things to them behold a ruler came to him uh it came and knelt before him saying my daughter has just died but come and lay your hand on her and she will live that's the english translation of matthew 9 18 and it's 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 a valid translation but you have to understand the words underneath it uh, Mark chapter five, verse 23, Mark's telling of the story says this. And, um, and Jairus implored him earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. Okay. Now, um, let's, if you had the ability to read Greek, okay, you would find that in the, um, in the Matthew account, um, the uh, the the Matthew verse says arte elte lutesen, okay, and that gets translated as just died, okay. In Mark, uh, Mark uses a slightly different set of words, and that is eskatas eker, okay. Now, I, if you if you don't read Greek, it's, it's all Greek to me. Well, let's focus in on the Matthew uh, nine passage. Okay, Matthew chapter nine. Okay, the important words are arte ete lutesen. Now, two words together, arte and ete lutesen. Okay, ete lutesen basically comes from the Greek word te lutao. And I know you're thinking, this is all Greek. What is he doing here? Well, when you put the two together, here's the, the here's the deal. The Greek word te lutao does not carry with it the exact same import as our word in English is to die. Okay, let me give you an example. In Hebrews eleven twenty two, um, the author of the Hebrews uh, uses the same uh, Greek verb te luta, uh, te uh, sorry <clears throat> te lutao, and here's what he says. Listen to this carefully. 
By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, you know, when he died, made mention of Exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Now, how can somebody who's, quote, died be making mention of his bones? If he's dead, he's dead, he can't talk. Well, that's the whole point. Telutao doesn't have with it that, that idea that it necessarily means a terminus. As a result of it, back going back to Matthew chapter 19, verse 18, you can actually take this Greek pass this this Greek phrase artetelutesen and you can translate it as, like this it could actually be translated as uh, my daughter who who just now is dying you, you could you could you could translate it that way come and heal my daughter who just now is dying that's one way that you can translate it it's absolutely perfectly valid from the Greek okay in fact, I'm not the only one to make this, who, who've pointed this out. Uh, there's an article at apologeticspress.org. In fact, it's article number 512 entitled Dead or Dying by Eric Lyons. They make the same point. Okay, here's what they say. Various Greek scholars and commentators have stated that there is not as much difference between Matthew's R.T. Atelutesen, has just died, see uh, Hebrews 11.22, and Eskates Eker is dying uh, in Matthew 5.23, as some would have us think. According to Craig Blomberg, R.T., that's the, uh, the Greek word R.T., even now or just, has some connotations to suggest not always a present reality, but an inevitable reality. Okay, therefore, and by the way, if you want to see examples of that, you look at Matthew 3.15 or Matthew 23.39 or 1 Corinthians 4.13. Uh, Therefore, Blomberg concluded that it is possible that Matthew was relating the inevitability and certainty of Jairus' daughter's dying rather than making a statement about her current condition. Adam Clark also mentioned this in his commentary on Matthew, that at 9.18, it could be translated, my daughter who was just now dying. Okay, and Albert Barnes also agrees here. The Greek word rendered is now dead does not of of necessity mean, as our translation would express, that she is actually expired, but only that she was dying or about to die. So Bart Ehrman claims that, you know, one of the reasons why he, uh, you know, he jettisoned his faith in the Bible and its uh, its reliability has to do with the fact that he was able to read it in Greek. But if he's able to read it in Greek, then certainly he's aware that from, you know, in translating uh, Matthew 9.18 and Mark 5.23, that there's really nothing, there's no qualitative difference in the Greek language between the two statements. And that's a perfectly plausible way of, of translating as basically saying, my daughter who just now is dying. It, it, that's perfectly plausible translation of Matthew 9.18, especially in light of Hebrews 11.22. See, that being the case... Um, he also fails to mention that in both accounts of the story of Jairus's daughter, that all of the rest of the details all jive between Matthew and Mark. So this, I mean, he's successfully pointed out that there is a grammatical difference between the way Matthew tells the story and a grammatical difference between the way Mark tells the same story but the the details are all consistent 
especially if you know Greek, then you can make the case that the details are absolutely consistent, especially if you look at how Matthew is using arte etelutesin. So that being the case, I mean, I think Bart Ehrman, you know, I I just seriously doubt that um, that we can trust him as a scholar because he doesn't seem to be very interested in actually looking for reasonable scholarly answers for these differences in how the stories are told. But just because there's a difference doesn't mean that it automatically gets elevated to the status of full-blown historical inaccuracy. It just doesn't even come close to logically following. Therefore, that being the case, I, I doubt that we can trust Bart Ehrman as a scholar. I mean, I've just demonstrated from three different supposed alleged discrepancies that he thinks are very significant for us to know that Bart Ehrman just doesn't seem to get the fact that all of these have been refuted. Therefore, he's basically begging the question and suppressing good scholarly data that shows that these are not true discrepancies that rise to the level of historical inaccuracies. Therefore, Art Ehrman can't be trusted as a scholar. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sermon review time when we get back. Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning for the written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877 246 one five one one 
The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. (laughs) The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Okay, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith. dive into our sermon review. Listen carefully to how God's word is used here. Before I jump the gun here, though, let me uh, cue up our music. Hang on. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. We're listening carefully to how pastors handle God's word and whether or not they're preaching sound biblical doctrine, correctly, rightly handling God's word, correctly handling law and gospel, and pointing us to Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins as the solution to our problems. If they're pointing you to yourself as the solution to your problem, well, they're not preaching biblical doctrine. They're not even preaching biblical sanctification. Today's sermon comes to us via The Journey. It's a church in uh, Muskegon, Michigan. Pastor Paul Urban... And the name of the uh, the sermon is 30 Days to Live. Now, you should know that the uh, sermon itself, the sermon series, is um, uh, themed after the television show 24. Yeah, anyway, so with that in mind, let's kill the music. And uh, let's dive into our um, sermon review proper. Here is um, Pastor Paul Urban on 30 Days to Live. 
takes place over the next 30 days. All right, already it's cheesy. This is Jack. Hey, Jack, this is Hastings at CTU. Listen up, the president wants to reassign you on a special mission. It's going to take the next 30 days. I think I can do this in 24 hours. It won't take me 30 days. Now, listen up, Jack. This is your last season, as you know, and this could be this could be it for you. This last assignment is very, very dangerous. So take time to say your goodbyes. Oh, I won't die. Haven't you ever seen the show before? I mean, I've been shot at. I don't die. I've been electrocuted. I've been exposed to radiation. I just never die. I'll, I'll be okay. series 30 days to live and i think a lot of times we feel like that like we won't die we'll be okay and especially if you're a teenager you know so much in in those years you think you know i'm kind of invincible and and no big deal i can can handle whatever comes my way i don't think we tend to think about death very much do we i mean generally we don't think about it a whole lot probably a lot because we don't want to think about it when my kids were younger they would play hide and seek and maybe you did this as a kid or maybe you have kids and they've done this but we go and play hide and seek, and they are always way, you know, so easy to find. But they, they would oftentimes be hiding, you know, in the middle of a room like this, right? And as long as I couldn't, as long as they couldn't see me, I couldn't see them. You know, they were invisible somehow. This made them invisible to everybody. And I think that's sometimes how we kind of think about death, right? You know, if I just cover my eyes and act like it's not coming, it won't come my way. I, I just don't think we think about it a whole lot. Then maybe there's those moments, uh, we see something on TV, uh, we go to a funeral, and we begin to think about our own mortality for just a moment. And then we quickly go back to this. It's going to act like it's not there. But death is coming. Are you glad you came this morning? <laughs> death is coming. All right. Okay. Um, okay, so the problem is, is that death is coming. Is the solution Christ and him crucified for our sins? that we rest in the mercy and forgiveness won by our great God and Savior on the cross through his shed blood, through his vicarious, vicariously taking upon himself the wrath of God in our place? Um, or, I mean, I mean, don't you think if you're going to talk about death, it's to be a perfect time about how God, you know, how Christ uh, was reconciling the world to himself through what Christ was doing? And all of the, I mean, if we're going to talk about death, I mean, judgment comes to mind. I mean, at least biblically for me. How about you all? Let's see what uh, Paul Urban does here. Luckily, we don't have props like the Grim Reaper standing behind me or anything. You know, I could die today. The minute I walk out of this building, I could hop in my car, I could drive home, and I could not make it. I could die today. And actually, the percentages are higher than you might think with my blue grandma car. But uh, I, I could die today. We don't know how long we have. And that's the reality for all of us. Which is interesting because 
we end up wasting so much of the time that we don't know if we really have. We spend it on things that are, are stupid. We spend um, so we we waste our time. Is that the equivalent of biblical sin? What's the solution? Just not wasting my time? Spend it on things that don't really matter. Well, over the next 30 days, we want to be talking about making our moments count. We're talking about focusing on what's most important. So you're focusing on death, and you got, and the solution is making your moments count. What about the big moment that really counted? Christ's death on the cross. The hours he spent suffering and bleeding in agony for our sins. What about that moment? Important. I want to challenge each of us to live in the moment. To move past intentions and should'ves and would'ves and could'ves. Every single um, week. Well, then maybe we should all make a bucket list, right? I saw that movie, The Bucket List. I mean, that way we don't have to worry about shouldas, wouldas, and couldas. We can just tick off the things in our bucket list and say we made every minute count. We did the things that we really thought were important. We have at the back, at the offering connect card boxes, we have these quarter-sized sheets called the Give Me More. And they take questions and verses and from the Bible, and they kind of help you take what we talk about on Sunday morning and continue it on during the week. So you can pick those up every single week if you want. They just kind of help you keep going with it during the week. One of the things that we talk about here is relationships, not religion. And if we're going to have a relationship with God, one of the very best ways we can do it is to get to know him in his word, the Bible. And so that will help you do that throughout the week. Yep, reading the Bible is important. I strongly advise it. In context, lots and lots and lots and lots of words in context. Full books. But throughout this series, during these next 30 days, those Give Me Mores are going to have specific challenges day to day. So I encourage you to pick one up Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. There's a challenge for each day so that we can begin to live like we've got 30 days to live. We can begin to live making the most of our moments and making the most of the opportunities that we have. Let me just ask you a question. How would you live differently if you only had 30 days left? How would you live differently? Seriously? Seriously. How would I live differently? I have no idea. I kind of live each day like it could be the last anyway. I think for most of us, we wouldn't care so much what other people thought, would we? Because a lot of us, we're consumed by that. Like, what would they think about that? And how would they view us if I did this or if I did that? Most of us just say, listen, I don't care what anybody else thinks. i got 30 days left. I'm going to do kind of what I want to do, or I'm going to go and do this. And if they don't like it, I mean, tough. I mean, who cares, right? I mean, you do understand. Here's the premise. In 30 days, you're going to be dead. You're going to stand before a holy and just and righteous and all-powerful, almighty God. And right out of the bat, you're talking about, are you going to be dead in 30 days? And, well, how would you live your life differently? Well, would you, you wouldn't care about what, what other people thought about you, would you? I'd be, I would be consumed with the thought, I'm going to see Jesus face to face in less than a month. That's a really cool thought for me, by the way. 
but don't you think that's where you should be focusing people? Again, the premise is they're going to be dead in 30 days. Dead. They're going to stand before God in 30 days. I think for most of us, we went DVR 18 shows because we're like, I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to spend my last 30 days just watching TV. I'm going to go out and do some things. I think for a lot of us, we wouldn't hold so tightly to our stuff. Right? I mean, we work so hard to get all these things and to have this great place and to do all these things and have a boat and have all this stuff. And I think if we had 30 days to live, live we'd be giving it away. No, if I had a boat and I had 30 days to live, I'd go contemplate Jesus on the boat. You know, that just sounds really cool, place to contemplate Jesus on. When we, I mean, we were saying, listen, when I go, I want you to have this. And we want to hold so tightly to our stuff. I'm pretty sure most of us wouldn't say, well, I'll do that later. I'll get to it but when the time is right. No, like the time is now. I got 30 days left. I got to make it count now. Uh, yeah, it just depends, though. If I have 30 days to live and my wife has given me a honeydew list, I might say, you know, honey, I, I, I might just wait on that. If I had 30 days to live, I'd sell all of my cubs and lions stuff because wait till next year wouldn't matter anymore, right? I'm just going to sell it all. Let me ask you this. If you had 30 days left, what would you eat a lot of? Right? I mean, wouldn't there be those stuff that you'd be like, I don't care if I gain 30 pounds. I'm gonna Yeah, I don't worry about that already. I'm going to eat as much deep dish Chicago pizza as I want right? because I, I just have 30 days left. I asked this question on Facebook uh, last week or the week before and had a lot of comments. And most of the comments said, if I had 30 days left, I would spend it with family. I just spend it with the people I love. I mean, that's where I would pour my time and my energy. I just spend it with my family. And as much time as I could get out of it, I would just suck it all out of it so I could just be with If you had 30 days to live, you'd probably be spending it in the hospital and then your family would be visiting you. You just I want to point that out. Seriously, can we talk about God here, please? This is supposed to be a church. With them. I would guess most of us wouldn't show up at work on Monday. If we had 30 days left, we'd be like, I'm not going in. Forget that. You might take your, your check and you might take some savings and say, you know what? We never went. We're going to Disney now. You know, or we're going here. We're going there. How would you live if you only had 30 days left? In the book of Psalms, in the Old Testament of the Bible, it's about halfway through your Bible. If you open up the halfway point, you're probably going to be in Psalms or Proverbs. Psalms chapter 39. There's some verses that are going to kind of guide our whole series. Psalms is a book that's written that has all sorts of songs and poems and almost like journal entries in it. It's a very kind of vulnerable book. Uh, just the person, the author is just kind of sharing their heart of kind of where they're at in life and the things they're struggling with. Yeah, what we have in the Psalms is, you know, somebody journaling their most vulnerable moments. No, this is the hymn book of the Bible. Yes, he does. By the way, we will be checking how he uses this verse and taking a look at it in context. Why? Because just because he's quoting a verse to you doesn't mean he's actually teaching you what the passage teaches. Let's continue with things they're dealing with. If you don't have a Bible uh, or you don't have one that's easy to read, we've got them. We give them away for free. They're back at the info center. If you had 30 days to live, would you get a Bible? 
Would you potentially read it? Center there, and we'd love for you to have it. The words will be up on the screen, but again, we want you to be able to look into God's word throughout the week, and so I want to encourage you to pick one of those up. It's page 690 if you've got a journey Bible, Psalm 39. Here's what he says, the author says. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. In that verse, he says, okay, God, would you help me to... Seriously, can we... If you have your Bible, open to Psalm 39. We're going to read it in context, which means we're going to read the whole thing. It's a psalm. It ain't that long, although there are some psalms that are huge. This is not that one. Is Psalm 39 and the verses he took out of context about, you know, living like you're going to die in 30 days? Is that the point of Psalm or is that a sub point for a bigger point? Well, let's take a look. Psalm chapter 39, verse 1. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. As my heart became hot within me, As I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all of mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in uh, turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all of my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all of mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you. A guest like all of my fathers, look away from me that I might smile again before I depart, and I am no more. Yeah, the psalm starts off with sin and wickedness, and even the psalmist confesses his own sin and wickedness and God's wrath towards him because of his sin. The major point of Psalm 39 is verse 7. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all of my transgressions or sins. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. 
Yeah, when you put it into context, the psalm itself, when you read it in context, has more depth and more focus on God in light of our fleeting life than this entire sermon has so far. And this guy just took out of this passage a a verse that talks about knowing how short our life is, but he's missing the whole point of the psalm. He's not really teaching you what God's word says. To use Mark Beeson's point, uh, he's twisting God's word. Let's continue. Let's see what he does with it. To see the end of my life, would you help me to look forward? Now, for a lot of us, we like to look forward or we'd, we'd like to look forward in our life because we're sitting in a place of unknown and we want to know how something's going to turn out, right? We want to, like, um, will this relationship work if I could just see a couple years down the road, right? Would I get that job? I, I just need to see, like, if I could just see three months down the road, then I'd be fine. Everything would be great. Jennifer and I, were um, in the middle of uh, selling our house and buying another house and and um, apparently he's done with Psalm 39. It served its purpose in his agenda, but not in God's teaching. And it's gone really quickly, but we're kind of in the middle of just all this waiting, you know, where there's, oh, it's going to underwriting and this, and then they need something back from this person. And every time that we think like a deadline is set on a Thursday, it's Friday, then it's Monday, and it's just this waiting. And we, we're often saying, like, I wish we just knew, because if we just knew, we'd be happy where we're at or we'd be happy to move, but we just want to know because it's just this unknown. I think a lot of us feel that way, and then you start to think about it more, and you say, well, no, I don't know if I'd want to know, like, what's going to happen in two years, because if I knew what's going to happen in two years, I might find out that that relationship broke, or I might find out that I had cancer, I might find out this or that. So we're like, nah, never mind, I don't want to know the future. But this author, he wants to know the future for a specific purpose. He wants to know how many days he has left for a reason. He wants a new perspective on life. He goes on to say, you have made my days a mere handbreadth. What? He wants a new perspective on life? Did you even read the psalm in context? Give me a break. Breath, the width from one side of my hand to the other. How short it is. The span of my years is nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. In the book of James, a New Testament book, it says that our life is like a mist, like a vapor. It's here and gone. Isn't that true? I mean, our lives are so quick. Okay, notice he's ripping verses out of context and stringing them together and telling you a story. He's not really teaching you what God's word says. He's not teaching sound doctrine at all. We we can't just expect that tomorrow will come. And so our goal throughout this series is that God would give us, like the psalm writer here asks for, a new perspective, a perspective of how short our life is. The psalm writer was not asking for a new perspective. A perspective of how little time we actually have here, so that we will make the most of every one of those moments. That we will make Uh, Again, Psalm 39 was all about wickedness, and including the psalmists. So that he might focus on the Lord, trust in him, and that the Lord would not remember his transgressions and sins. See, Psalm 39 really is all about Christ, because how is it that God doesn't remember our transgressions and sins? It's because of what Christ did for us on the cross. 
So that new perspective, that perspective he's looking for, it's so that he understands how short his life is and how wicked he is and how much he needs the forgiveness of sins and transgressions from his God. Them count that we will live lives effectively. You know, if we're really going to live, we need to live like we're terminal. Because we are. We are. We're all terminal. So if we're going to have 30 days to live, and we're just kind of picking that number, 30 days left, don't wait till you're dying to start really living. We need to make the most of our moments, not wasting them. So oftentimes we just waste our moments. Maybe it's because we're lazy. You know, and maybe if you're like me, and I've done this many times, I look back after a week or after even just a night, I'm like, why did I just waste all that time sitting on the couch, you know, just turning the channels? Or why did I waste all that time just doing this or doing that? Sometimes we waste our time by being too busy. We're just being busy with all the wrong things. We, we put ourselves in all these different arenas, and we're not doing the most important things. We're just keeping ourselves busy, and we've been wasting our time. Sometimes we're just always saying, you know, I'll do it later, I'll do it tomorrow. Listen to what uh, the book of Ephesians, which is way kind of towards the back of the Bible, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Ephesians chapter 5, page 1538 in the Journey Bible. What the author says here about this kind of wasting of time and the importance of kind of living like we're terminal, having this new perspective. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 says this, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. And what is wise? Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. It goes on in verse 17 to say that if you don't live that way, you're living foolishly. We're called to make. Okay. Is, is uh, Ephesians chapter 5 about all about you living like you're terminal? Okay, keep in mind, this is the tail end of an entire letter. So this is close to the concluding thoughts of this entire letter, and the letter begins in the gospel. It begins with the forgiveness of sins, Christ's vicarious death on the cross, salvation by grace through faith, that we were all dead in trespasses and sins, um, and, and, you know, talking about the resurrection power of Christ in our lives, all of that is in the opening chapters or the, you know, the, the first third of the letter to the Ephesians. So just starting at chapter five, verse 15 is to kind of like start in the middle of the end and not, I mean, you're jumping into the end of an entire conversation and you expect to know what what the you know, what's being talked about again Ephesians 5:15 was never meant to be read out of context for stripping it for life principles on how to live like you're dying okay so let me read Ephesians chapter 5 starting at verse 1 we're going to apply our three rules for biblical interpretation they are context context and context and then what we're going to do is keep this in mind. You know, the the the, the fuller context for this is the the four four chapters that preceded it that begins in the gospel. When the apostle Paul talks about Christian sanctification, he never discusses it apart from the cross. 
always our Christian sanctification flows from, is centered in on, focuses on, never leaves Christ and him crucified for our sins. So when he talks about marriage, it's marriage in light of the cross. When he talks about being you know, a servant, it's servant in light of the cross. When he talks about uh, putting on the full armor of God, it's putting on the full armor of God and serving your neighbor in light of the cross. The cross is everything. Without it, you miss all of Christian sanctification. That being the case, keep this in mind. We begin with the context of understanding that Paul has just made an extended multi-chapter long argument about how we are saved by grace through faith apart from works as a gift from God. Therefore, in light of the cross and salvation by grace through faith alone, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Look at that. Even when he says walking in love towards our neighbor, he points to Christ and his cross. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place. Why? Because of the cross. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk in light of the cross, right? Look carefully, then, as how, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yeah, you you see, when you put it back into context, I mean, it's just a sub-point to the bigger point, and the bigger point is Christ and him crucified for our sins and living in light of that reality. It's not living in light of the reality of, I'm going to die someday, I better make the most of my life. No, no, no. It's living in light of the reality that Christ died for our sins. 
completely different focus that, of what Paul is teaching in Ephesians 5 than what Pastor Urban is saying here. He's missed the entire point of the passage. Why? Because he's focusing in on you, not Christ. The most of every opportunity. How much of our time is wasted on stupid things? Worrying, discussing, arguing about things that don't even matter. Heck, I, I just spent a couple weeks ago like four hours researching the NFL draft for the Lions. The 2-14 and 14 Lions. I'm an idiot. You know, Why did I spend all that time? That's just time I can never get back, right? We just waste moments so often. We need to focus in on the things that matter. Focus in on the things that we do if we only had 30 days to live. Like making relationships right. Like speaking uh, things to people that we know we want to say. And maybe you've been there before. I wish I would have said this to them before they died. I wish I, I wish I would have told them how I felt before they left. Speaking those things that are most important. Making relationships right. Focusing our energy on living fully in the moment. But also focusing on eternity and things that really matter. Not letting our critics kind of sway us and, and kind of tell us how we should live, but let God tell us how we should live and taking next steps. I mean, if we only have 30 days to live, we need to be focusing on those things that are most important. Here's another way to kind of ask the question. If you were on your deathbed, if you had a week left, a day left, hours left to live, if you were on your deathbed, what would be the things that you would regret not having done? What would be the things that you would regret not having done? I should have spent more time with my kids. I mean, why did I, why did I spend so much time on that hobby? And, and I mean, it was fun and all, but, but I should have spent time here. Why okay, you can get this pep talk from Oprah, Dr. Phil, uh, Dr. Laura. I don't need a crucified and risen Savior for this. And this isn't even, this isn't even Christian sanctification because it's not in light of what Christ has done for me. Why, why didn't I spend more time talking to this person? Why didn't I tell that person, that friend, that relative about Jesus? Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? What would be the things that you would regret not having done? Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity. See, maybe this week your next step is to write those things down. To, to write some of those things down. I would challenge you to do that this week. And I think that's actually one of our challenges on that Give Me More card. To write down those things that are most important, those things that you would regret not having done if you end up on your deathbed. Um, do they go to hell if they don't you know, do the right thing regarding that list? And then don't convince yourself that you'll just get to them later because you might not have later. Psalm 39.5. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. You know, I think in our society, we have such a hard time slowing down. Don't we? I mean, anything that takes us off of our schedule, off of our to-do list, away from our goal sheet, just becomes a distraction. It irritates us. I, I tend to be a big picture thinker. I tend to think a year down the road, five years down the road. But what happens too much is that because I'm always thinking like out here, I tend to miss the moments right next to me. 
I don't want to be that person. I want to guard against that. I want to be fully present in the moments. I want to be fully present in those moments. Experience all that God has for me. And we still need to set goals. We still need to kind of have a vision and a direction of where we're headed. Matter of fact, uh, last summer, and it's the last banner up there on the right, Destinations. We did a series called Destinations. It said your direction determines your destination. And in one of those weeks, we took it a step further, and we said your direction, not your intentions, determine your destination. We need to have a goal. We need to be focused forward but we need to also be fully present in the moments. The problem is... Man, I'm going to lose it. This is completely Christless, and this is not a biblical sermon at all. This guy is not teaching you what Scripture teaches. So often what we do is we've got great intentions to be fully present in the moment. We intend to spend time with our kids, but, you know, there's just so much else going on, and we'll do it later. I mean, we promise that we will. We'll, We'll get to it later. We have great intentions that will restore that relationship, but the time just never seems right. We have great intentions that, that, that will make things right in this relationship, that will spend time with these people, that will do this or do that thing, that, that will quit doing this habit. We've got great intentions, but intentions will get us nowhere. Instead, we need to take action. If we've only got 30 days left to live, we need to take action. When we begin to live like we're terminal, when we begin to live like we've got 30 days left, it becomes that call to action. That's what we need. Not should'ves and would'ves and could'ves, but didn'ts. I love that about Jesus, actually. He seemed to be fully present in the moments. And yet he was a big picture person. Jesus, from the time that he kind of first began his ministry, he called these 12 ragtag group of guys and said, I'm going to invest and pour into their lives. Now, you would think that you might go about it a different way. Maybe you just draw the biggest crowds that you can, and hopefully some people would rise to the top. But he just invested in these 12 guys, and I'm going to pour into their life. And eventually, these ragtag group of followers, they're going to go out, and they're going to share this message of relationships, not religion, connection to Jesus, this relationship with God, and they're going to spread this around the world. He's big picture thinking right from the very start. From the time that he first healed somebody, Jesus was headed to the cross. He was on this mission towards the cross. Big picture. And then Jesus was interrupted all the time. I mean, his days were filled with interruptions. And yet he saw those interruptions as opportunities. Whereas I see interruptions as interruptions. Right? I mean, just I don't have time for this. Jesus saw it as an opportunity, and he was fully present in the moment, even though he was always looking forward. In fact, there's a story that's found in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 8. So in Luke chapter 8, we find out about how Jesus was living in the moment. Okay, can't wait to see it. Luke's the third book of the New Testament of the Bible. It is a biography of Jesus' life written by a doctor, and if you're new to the Bible, Luke is a great book to start in because you're going to Read the stories of Jesus, and you can find where it is in the concordance in the front of the Bible. This story is found on page 1,352. Jesus, just to kind of set the stage, he's been out and about doing all sorts of ministry, healing people and speaking to large crowds and doing all of this. 
And he kind of returns back where he's going to spend some time with his disciples. I don't know about you, but when life is busy and hectic and you return home, for me at least, it feels like an oasis. I kind of take a deep breath and like, okay, I'm home. I don't have to worry about anything. You know, I can just kind of do my thing. And Verse 40 of Luke chapter 8. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him. For they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, in that instance, I'm sure that we probably all would have went, you know, to help him. But I know enough of my dark soul to know that I've been like, I mean, is there somebody else that could do it? You know, like, how far away is it? But Jesus... Jesus saw an opportunity. He was fully present in the moment. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his coat, and immediately her bleeding stopped. And Jesus says, who touched me? And when everybody denied it, like, I didn't touch it, I wasn't touch it, it wasn't me. Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. In other words, what Peter was saying was, everybody touched you. Like the whole crowd, they're touching me. I'm uncomfortable, but everybody's touching everybody. Just you know, It's just this crowd. What are you talking about? Of course somebody touched you. But you I can't wait to find out what the punchline of the story is in light of this 30 days left to live thing. Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And to be honest, I have no idea what that means. But somehow, like, power went out from Jesus when this woman touched his coat, the bottom of his coat, and she was healed. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And they said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. As she leaves, this um, servant comes up, this servant of this guy, Jairus, whose daughter was dying. He comes up and says, hey, you know what? Don't bother this guy anymore. She's dead. And Jesus, he goes on and he says, listen, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. He's totally butchering this story. I'm... (laughs) I might just have to clean this up. And he goes with her, and he brings her back from the dead. I mean, incredible, right? But Jesus, in the middle of just being like where I would be, like, I'm just tired. I just want to chill. I want to hang out with these guys. I want to take it easy. Like, in a- Where does it say that Jesus wanted to chill? <laughs> I'd like to see that verse. Interruption after interruption after interruption. And yet he saw them as opportunities. He was fully present in the moment. And I so want to live that way. Right? <laughs> Um, Pastor Urban, put the Bible down, close it, step back from the podium. You are not qualified to do what you're doing. Stop swinging that sword. You're hurting people with it rather than helping them. (laughs) Jesus was in the moment, but he wanted to chill. Oh, good night. (sighs) Luke chapter 8, if you have your Bible. One of my favorite stories. Absolutely a fantastic story about faith. 
and how compassionate and loving our Jesus is. I mean, this is amazing, amazing stuff when you really consider uh, the weight of what is going on in the story. Let's see here. Um, okay. All right. We're going to start at verse 40. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. I'm reading from the ESV. That's I lovingly refer to it as the English sanctified version. That's the version I prefer. Uh, a while ago, I made the transition from NIV to ESV. Never look back. Love it. Um, I think I love about the ESV is I don't find myself gnashing my teeth when I'm reading passages because I know what it says in the Greek. And I, I, when I was reading the NIV, it got to the point where I was saying, yep, that's not what that passage says. <laughs> I was correcting it all the time. I was going, yeah, but no, that's not a good trend. Anyway, <clears throat> Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man, Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. Okay. Let that part sink in for a second. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. That means he is a religiously trained man. He is a religious leader in this town. Okay. So he knows this woman who has been subject to bleeding. Keep that in mind. She is ceremonially unclean and not able to participate in things. She's forbidden from participating in things because she is ceremonially unclean. Okay. Jairus fully aware of this. Okay. It would, in fact, I would say it would be almost bizarre to claim that he didn't know anything about her. Okay. So, okay. By the way, when I refer to this story, I love to refer to it as the story of the two daughters because when mark tells the story he refers to the woman who had an issue of blood as jesus refers to her as daughter i'm not sure what luke does with it but let's take a look (sighs) all right so okay so falling at jesus's feet he implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying mark luke and even matthew when you understand what the greek is saying agree his daughter is at the point of death as jesus went the people pressed around him and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years notice this woman had a discharge of blood for 12 years jairus's daughter was there it was was 12 years old so as long as jairus's daughter had been alive this woman had been really considered to be ceremonially unclean according to the law of moses And though she had spent all her living, all of her money on doctors and physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. You can't imagine the frustration, the pain that this woman has gone through. Not physically, but emotionally being kept from the synagogue, kept from the temple, kept, I mean, Ah, for 12 years, many people probably considered her to be cursed of God. That would be a common conclusion to come to. So she came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. Now, she's sneaking a healing here, but here's the deal. She doesn't want to make Jesus unclean either. Okay, you got to keep that. That's that's part of what's playing into this. Okay. So she came up, touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all deny it, 
Peter said, Master, the crowds are surrounding you and pressing in on you. Jesus said, someone has touched me. I perceive the power has gone out from me. And when he saw, and when the woman saw that he was, that she was not hidden, she came trembling. She's terrified. She comes trembling and falling down before Jesus. She declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. Now, Jairus is sitting there watching all of this unfold, knowing that he has not got any time. When he left, his daughter was taking her last breaths, and he knew it. And there's this woman. There she is. And you can almost see what's going on in this guy's mind. Am I going to lose my daughter because this woman made it so that Jesus didn't get there in time? If he had a wristwatch on, he would have been tapping it. She came trembling and falling down before Jesus declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, daughter, not woman, daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. No rebuke. No how dare you, you unclean woman. Daughter. And keep in mind, faith is a pass-through word. Faith always has an object. Who was the object of her faith. It was her Jesus. And her Jesus healed her and called her daughter. And then the other shoe drops. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. I can't imagine what this would have been like. To lose one of my daughters. And, and the way everything unfolds. I mean, Jairus just has to feel completely powerless here. And it's so, and, and on some level indignant, and on some level just confused and disheartened. Someone comes from his house and says, "Your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore." But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, "Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well." Now, 
This doesn't come through in the English text, but it comes through in the Greek text. Only belief. It's the same Greek root word, faith. Faith comes from the same root word for believe. It's pistis, pistuo, believe, trust. Jesus is saying to Jairus, only trust me, trust me, believe, have faith. The same faith that that woman had, that same faith that healed and made that woman well, have that trust, believe in me, believe. Jesus is focusing Jairus to himself, focusing Jairus on his Jesus, the same way that woman, her faith was on her Jesus. When they came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except for Peter and John and James, and the father and the mother of the child. All were weeping and mourning. But he said, do not weep. She's not dead. She's only asleep. And I think Jesus is the only one who could possibly make a statement like that. They laughed at Jesus, knowing that she was dead, but taking her by the hand, he said to her, Child, arise. Her spirit returned. She got up at once. He directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed. And he charged them to tell no one what had happened. From Jairus' point of view, his head was spinning. What on earth had he just witnessed? What? Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? He knows when somebody touches him in a crowd and that when, when somebody touches him to be healed, they're, they're healed. Power leaves him. The, the people who are unclean and outcasts, he calls them daughter. And he raises my daughter from the dead. Who is this Jesus? This isn't a story about living in the moment. This is a story about the moment that Jesus calls you to repent of all of your wickedness. To trust him. To trust him even with your death. Because like Jairus' daughter, you are someday going to die. And Jesus' words to Jairus ring true and they pass through right to you. Regarding your forthcoming death, do not fear. Only believe. Only trust in Jesus. That's what preaching this text biblically would look like. But Pastor Urban is off on a tangent, and I have no idea what he's up to. I'm fully present in the moments where I don't miss them because I don't know how many I will have. Listen, throughout this series, we're going to be talking about living like we're terminal, about making the most of the moments and doing things that are the most important. And this series will guide us, if we let it, to have a more impactful and meaningful life, one that's high on impact and low on regrets. We'll learn how to really live 
in the moment throughout this series. My guess is to a person, we'd say, I don't want to get to the end of my life and look back on it and say, I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have said that. We want to make the most of our moments. If we're really going to live, we've got to live like we've only got 30 days left, like we're, like we're terminal. But we also have to come to grips with one more reality. We really will die. No covering over the eyes. We really will die. We don't know when. We don't know how. But we will all die. And the most important issue that we'll face, even more important than how we'll live in these moments with these 30 days or one day or 8,000 days left, whatever we have, even more important than that is what we'll do with our death. When our 30 days or whatever you have left is up, what then? What then? The Bible tells us that we don't have to be discouraged and defeated by that. Because it would be very easy to do that, right? Like my life is just a hand breath. <laughs> discouraged. <laughs> I'm going to die. <laughs> so... <laughs> So don't be discouraged or defeated by the fact that you're going to die. I, th- <laughs> I think my emotional state is like the least of my worries on the hour of my death. Good night. I'm about to die, but I sure don't feel discouraged or defeated about it. Yay! <laughs> oh, please preach the gospel, Paul. It's just this small, and we're going to die. And, and, you know, I've only got this short amount of time. It would be very easy to be just like, oh, woe is me, right? But the Bible tells us that we can actually live with hope and even anticipation in the midst of that. That's what the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus is all about. Ha, ha, (laughs) gospel. Oh, I was afraid he wasn't going to get to it. I'm pleasantly surprised. Okay, let's see what he does with it. He has a few minutes left in the sermon. Maybe, just maybe, he can, you know, get in the moment and preach like he's only got 30 (laughs) days to live. Us in our small amount of time here on earth mess up and sin. (laughs) We blow it. Over and over and over again. That's me. That's my story. And because God is perfect and holy, and we're not, we're separated from him. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came to this earth. He died for your sins and my sins. And there was some incredible transaction that happened when he was on the cross. Okay, now... Absolutely true. Christ died for your sins and for my sins. I'm glad that we're hearing the gospel at this point, but here's the problem. Um, We don't have a proper understanding of God's law and what sin really means. Okay? Is sin not living in the moment? I, I don't know. Because, well... Let's continue. I mean, you got to make con- you got to make sense of the gospel. 
It's important to preach, and I'm glad that he's doing it, but it needs to be made sense of in light of what God's word reveals regarding our sinfulness. What does it mean to sin? Where it's like he took all of our sins on himself, and he gave us his perfection and righteousness so that we could be right with God, that we could be made right with him. I don't understand it. It makes no logical sense to me that we have a God who would love us so much that he would send his only son to go through all that pain. Now, as he sees us as his children, I can understand it. Just the other day on Friday, my oldest son. Uh, apparently, that's it. We're done with the gospel now. You got to give him. You got to give him some kudos for the effort, though. I mean, we did hear the gospel. It just doesn't make any sense, and even he doesn't quite know how to make sense of it either. That's kind of the problem. I was playing basketball on the trampoline, and he dunked the ball, and he caught his front adult tooth in the net. It ended up about 20 feet away from the basketball hoop, and. Uh, and and I'll spare you all the details, which are pretty gross and, you know, all that kind of stuff. The tooth was not saved. Um, but uh, but I was sitting with him, and I said, Spencer, oh, I said, I'm so sorry that you have to go through this. And I'll tell you what, if they could rip out my tooth instead of yours, I would do it in a heartbeat. He was like, really? <laughs> you would do that for me? I was like, yeah, when you're a parent, you'll understand that. We have a God that loves us so much that he was willing to put his own son on a cross to experience all that pain so that we wouldn't have to if we begin this relationship with him. So we don't have to have pain if we begin a relationship with Jesus? if we'd accept him as our savior, if we begin this relationship and live with him. And when we do, the Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Lord, that we need him to be our savior, our leader. And we believe in our heart that our leader. See, he knows he's got to preach the gospel, but I don't know if he knows how to make sense of it. That God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. What that means is that our eternity is with him in heaven. So that one day when our days are done, whether it's today going home or it's 30 days or it's 100 days or it's 1,000 or it's 8,000 or it's 10,000, that we can know that we'll spend eternity with God in heaven if we'll receive what he did for us on that cross. And if we're going to live these next 30 days and make them count and begin to live like we're terminal and begin to live like we've only got 30 days left so we make the most of our moments, this is law. Listen, our moments won't matter a whole lot if we don't deal with that issue first. We need to know what we're going to do with Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. And he says, embrace me. Embrace this gift that I've given to you. We've all sinned. We've all messed up. We're all separated from God. But God made a way because he loves us that much. And we're called to embrace that. That's the issue that we have to deal with first. And when we deal with that issue, then we begin to live like we're terminal, begin to focus on eternity, and we can make the most of our moments here.
we're going to pray, and as we pray, I just want to encourage you, if this is, if you've not begun that relationship, maybe today needs to be your day for that. Where you can simply tell them, yeah, I've messed up, I've sinned, and if you're offering freedom from that and a relationship with you through what Jesus did, man, I want to receive that. I want to accept that, what you did. I'll take that. And then we begin to turn and live for him. And for some of us, maybe you've already done that. I want to encourage you that you be praying these next 30 days. You've already done. So does this forgiveness of sins apply to the Christians in the audience? Pastor Urban, don't they need Jesus too? Haven't they sinned lately? You yourself talked about how much time you've been wasting on the football thing regarding the Tigers or Detroit Lions. Yeah. Uh, kind of a discombobulated doesn't make any sense gospel but it's gospel nonetheless we're hearing the biblical gospel got to give them props for that that you would help that god would help you to live like you're terminal to live like you've only got 30 days left pick up one of those so we need jesus to make a decision to have a relationship so that we can become heavenly minded so we can live like we're terminal Maybe it would be easier if these guys just handed out a like an outline and just said, here's fill in the blank number one, two, three, four, five, and just move on, you know. Give me more. Take those challenges. Let's begin to live like we've got just a mere handbreadth of a life because that is what we have. Let's make the most of our moments. Let's pray together. Okay, we're done. So you heard the biblical gospel, but you didn't hear it make any sense at all because it was – done in the light of, you know, living in the moment and all the, not even sound biblical teaching on what the Bible taught. Pastors, if you're going to make sense of the gospel, you've got to talk about sin and explain what it is. You can't just say you need to live your life in light of eternity. Oh, and Jesus died for your sins. Uh, Okay. When you talk about the good news... You need to explain it in light of the bad news. Otherwise, it, it becomes discombobulated and it doesn't make any sense. Well, okay, so Jesus died for my sins, in, but you're telling me the thing I really need to do is to live for eternity, you know, to live like I'm dying, you know, and make the most of every moment. Is it a sin if I don't do that? You know, it's, it doesn't make any sense. You know, it'd be like me basically getting up in front of the Home Depot home improvement class. Now, class, we're going to learn about properly laying tile. Make sure that when you're grouting your tile, that you, you know, that before you lay your tiles down, that you, you know, you put the spacers down so that you have the proper width between your tiles before you apply the grout. Oh, and Jesus died for your sins. <laughs> when I say it like that, I think you get what I'm saying. You know, and make sure uh, you folks out there, when you're doing your laundry, that you make sure that you separate the whites from the colors and the darks. Because if you mix your colors and your darks and your whites together, then what will happen is, is that your husband's white skivvies will become pink. Oh, and Jesus died for your sins. (laughs) Yeah, I see it doesn't work. You have to correctly preach law and gospel 
And the solution is not you making a decision. Why is it that these guys are always thinking that the important thing is that you make a decision? You got to make a decision. Jesus made a decision for me. I don't need to make a decision for him. He's decided for me. And he calls me to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And that repentance and that trust and faith in him is a gift from him given to me through the preaching of the gospel. <sighs> but we did. He, he did preach the gospel. We heard it. And he even talked in passing about the uh, imputed righteousness of Christ. He didn't know what to make, how to make sense of it, because it doesn't make sense in light of everything else in the sermon. You get what I'm saying. I'm just beating a dead horse. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means if you would like to support us, if you'd like to, well, if you'd like to hear us continue. <laughs> That's probably the better way of putting uh, We need your financial support in order to continue bringing this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And uh, when you join our crew... Uh, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to uh, to our mission. And uh, it automatically contributes, of course, if you'd like to uh, specify the amount, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen.